Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name. I uh, to welcome you to our worship service this morning, especially our visitors. We're glad you're here for whatever reasons, and uh, we hope you have enjoyed worshiping with us thus far, and we'll continue to do that. The Lord has blessed us with peace in this land. We can gather in this way, and a person can't help but thinking of the issues we were talking about in Sunday school of Hezekiah's father and all the enemies coming and attacking the land and the problems that that caused. And here we are in 2023, and the land of Israel is still in turmoil, isn't it? Still enemies attacking them and and fighting. And it's all. It seems really unfair when you think about it that here we are peacefully worshiping the Lord, and we thank God for that. And there's parts of the world where there is unbelievable unrest and bloodshed and hatred and it's ungodliness at its finest, I guess you'd say. But um, we thank God for that, for our, not for that, but for our privileges we have and we pray for those that that uh, are not um, experiencing those kinds of uh, blessings. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Luke 14. For a springboard for today's last um, sermon, we won't necessarily dwell on this passage long, but there's a lesson here in this passage that we want to uh, use as somewhat of a subject as we move forward. Luke 14 and verse 28, a very familiar little story here that Jesus tells, as he was very prone to do to make his points. And it goes like this. It's in the context of uh, he's saying, you know, if, if somebody wants to follow me and he comes along and he doesn't do, he doesn't meet these requirements, he doesn't bear his cross, uh, he can't be my disciple. And then he gives this story. He said, which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build, and he was not able to finish. Or what king going to war to make war against another king sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage, and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Now, just kind of moving away from the context just a bit, what Jesus is saying here is that um, if when, when, when we undertake something uh, such as building a tower, I don't know how many of you built a tower recently, I built a shed, but I didn't build a tower, before I, I, I did that, I sat down and I talked with Alan and I talked with a few people. And I said, now, what is this going to cost me? And after I had those things together, I added 10% because it's always short. You just know that. And I decided that I had what it took to build the shed. So we built the shed. And it worked out. Now, it would have been very foolish for me to say, you know what, I'm going to build a shed. And I want the, the shed to be this size or whatever. And... Um, um, I'm not going to bother talking to Alan about what it's going to cost me or whatever. 
and I'm not going to do any calculations. I'm not even going to bother to look in the banking account to see what's there. I'm just going to bill a shed. Well, we'd have got halfway done and ran out of funds. Well, it would, I would have taken a very foolish risk, would have I not? I, if I would have just assumed that somehow, out of who knows where, funds would just appear for for this project. Um, foolish. And as a matter of fact, I, uh, there's, a, there's a house up the road from us, not very far, that uh, that exact same thing happened. Well, I guess I'll take that back. I'm not sure if it's exactly the same thing, but the man began to build a house, and he got so far, and I don't know if he ran out of funds or if he lost interest or what happened, but he quit. And he looks really foolish. It, it's, in, it, it's been that way for many years, and I don't even know if the thing stands anymore. It's, it was really going downhill fast. What I want to talk about this morning is the foolishness of taking unnecessary risk, okay? I'm going to tell you a little story, or what prompted my, my mind in this direction. I have a little picture here, and I don't know how well you can see that. Does anybody, does, do you recognize that little, that little thing there at all? All right, some of you do. Some of you don't, and that's all right. This little thing is a... Uh, is a uh, submersible, they call it. Uh, those of you that know anything about this, tell me, tell me where that submersible is today. Does it look like that? No, it doesn't. What's it look like, Stan? In multiple pieces. <laughs> some of it on the bottom of the ocean, some of it in some research center somewhere. Or at least that's where it was. So if you want to really get... Uh, you really want to get um, uh, uh, put a spin on the title. We're going to talk about Russia's risks this morning. Okay, the man that owned this thing was a, was a man by the name of Stockton Rush. I knew nothing about Stockton Rush until June 18th, and um, the only reason I know anything about him now is because I subscribe to Plain News. Maybe some of you do too, and and you know they they'll send you weekly updates of news items that they think that you should be interested in or or they they think worthy of giving you anyway and 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 I'm reading over that one day and I read about this submersible in this this weird deal and I'm like this is really weird so I uh I decided I'm going to I'm going to research this a little bit and the more I researched it the more fascinated I became with this whole ordeal to the point that I was almost daily reading or or you know, just really researching this, probably, <laughs> maybe I got a little infatuated with it, I don't know, but it was just really, it really interests me, this, this, this guy and his submersible, and anyway, uh, to give you a little backstory, just real quickly, if you don't know about this man, uh, this man, Stockton Rush, um, he grew up in a, in a wealthy family, and early in life he had an interest in aviation and space exploration. And he had aspirations at one point that he wanted to be the first person to land on Mars. But then one day, um, he uh, took a submarine ride in British Columbia, 2006, and his interest turned from space exploration to underwater exploration. He was fascinated with what he saw underwater, and he thought, well, that's even more interesting than, than Mars, maybe. Or at least I assume that's what he thought. Whatever reason, he decided he really liked this. 
And he, he went out to, to purchase a submarine. He decided that's where it's at. I'm going to get me a submarine. But he found out how difficult that was and how expensive that was and how unlikely that was that he was going to own a submarine. So he decided, you know what? Scrap it. I'll build my own submarine. That's what I'll do. And so he did that. And he built this little thing I just showed you. It's, it was called the, uh, the Titan. He, he named it. And, um, Building a submarine, I don't know if you know this, but it's very expensive. This is not cheap to build a submarine, in case you were thinking of doing so. So he decided he would, he'd take a few shortcuts, and one of the biggest shortcuts he decided to take is he was going to build the hull out of what is called carbon fiber rather than steel. A submarine is typically made out of very, very thick steel, all right? And the reason for that is when you get underwater, that the pressure is unbelievable, and uh, it'll smash a lot of things. It'll smash you if you were underwater very far. Anyway, so he said, you know, I think carbon fiber will work. And, and if you don't know what carbon fiber is, I didn't either. I had to research that even. It's basically, just think of it like this. Think of it as taking a string and winding it around and around and around and around and around and around and around, and while you're winding that string you're adding resin or glue to that. And, and this thing is hardening and it's getting thicker and you keep winding the string and winding the string. And finally, you have a hardened, wound up piece of string, all right, that you're willing to crawl inside of and do whatever you want to do, I guess, with it. Carbon fiber is a very widely used um, um, piece of uh, material. I understand it is used in, uh, in aviation uh, airplanes, uh, carbon fibers used in their construction. <clears throat> if I'm not wrong, I think even uh, some space space um, uh, equipment is built by, by carbon fiber. So it is very durable. Uh, it's not like it's not like he was using um, material that was completely off the wall. But carbon fiber had never been tested in extreme pressures underwater. And because it had not been, uh, he had people that knew his ambitions that said, y you know, Rush, we, we, we think you might be making a, a mistake here. Are you really, really sure that this thing can, can do what you said it can do? Uh, that's fine with him. He, um, he was going to do it. They, they said, at the very least, take it to a third party and, uh, and get it certified. Get it certified that it can do what you want it to do. Uh, he, he didn't, he didn't want to. You don't want to bother with that. Furthermore, in, in order to make this little, this little submersible, he took to using other somewhat inferior parts. Um, he, uh, he went to Camper World and bought lights for it, so that's where they came from. And you drove the whole thing with an Xbox controller. And he had several of them, just in case one gave out, he could grab another one quick. And um, people that know anything about submarines you know, to use just common language, we're having a cow about this. They were like, this is not a good idea at all. But Stockton, he, he didn't care. He, he was going to make this thing, so he, he continued on. And here's a quote that he had uh, a year or two ago when he was being uh, interviewed by um, somebody that was interested in his ambitions. He said, um, he said this, and I heard him say this, and you can too if you want to go online and look it up. He said, you know, at some point, safety is just a pure waste. I mean, if you want to be safe, don't get out of bed. 
Don't get in your car. Don't do anything. At some point, you're going to take some risk. And really, it is a risk-reward question. I don't think you can do this just as safely. I'm sorry, I'll reread that. I think I can do this just as safely by breaking the rules. That was his attitude. In 1993, the United States had passed a law, and you know, we, it, there's a little bit of me, just a little bit of me that understands Russia's exasperation. It does seem like we live in the land of regulation. It's a little old sometimes. We know that, those of us in industry, we, we get a little tired of regulation, don't we? We think it's over the top, and maybe that's where Rush was. I don't know. We've got to give him a little benefit of the doubt here, I guess, but... In 1993, the United States had passed a construction of ocean tourism vessels law, if you will. And Rush described that law as needlessly prioritizing passenger safety over commercial aviation. Well, I have a feeling on, on June 18th of this year, he had some other thoughts about his words. I really wonder if seconds before that thing went if he had any thoughts of, boy, I was a little bit of a smart aleck there, wasn't I? I have no idea. Uh, there's, we, we, we truly don't know what the demise of that, of that submersible looked like. There's a lot of speculation. There's even some stuff circulating on the Internet that is supposedly the last communications between the submersible and the, uh, and the mother ship on top. And if, if that's true, which I don't know if it is or not. I, I just don't know if that's verifiable. Uh, there, there certainly seems like there could have been a few minutes where these people knew they were in big trouble and knew there was no way out of it. Okay? <clears throat> Let's talk about risk just a little bit before we move further into the message. Risk, to put it in its meaning, simply means to engage in a situation that involves vulnerability to danger or negative outcome. To expose something with life, I'm sorry, with value, like life or property, to danger, loss or harm, for something that is considered more important. That's risk. And, and, and Stockton was actually right. By the way, this man's name is Stockton Rush. So it's quite a name, and sometimes I call him Stockton, sometimes I call him Rush. But that's his name, Stockton Rush. He was right in the point that there is some risk that is inherent to life. Um, we, we took a little bit of a risk to drive to church this morning. Now, the risk was really low, really low. If everybody obeys the traffic laws and, and nothing ridiculous happens on our car, like our wheel flies off or something, or a deer jumps out of this, we're probably going to arrive where we want, right? The stakes are low. So, but we did, we did engage some risk, and we engage in risk. So he's right on that. But generally speaking, um, we don't speak of that as risk either. I, I didn't, like, I, I don't expect that to ask any of you after church. Well, it's good to see you at church this morning. You'd say, boy, yeah, I took the risk, <laughs> really risked that this morning, you know. I, like, take a deep breath when you drive in the, in the parking lot that, wow, we, we arrived at church. What a, what a feat, right? But usually when we use the, the term risk, it, it, it has to do with, with that probability of a negative outcome ramping up. 
Things are getting more and more unlikely that this will actually work. But what I want to achieve overpowers that unlikelihood of this working. So I'll take the risk. I'll do it because I, I want what I want this outcome so badly. And when we take risk, the risk taker is not so much judged on his willingness to take the risk. Okay, follow me here. But it's more on what the risk was taken for. Okay, so um, you can go out and take risks for really, really silly things. But you're going to be judged on the silliness of what you did it for. But if you take a risk to save someone's life and you miss it, it doesn't work out, you will be counted a hero. You follow me? It's more about what you're going for. Firemen, they take risks. Um, sometimes there's a person that's um, in need of monetary help, and we we look at it and we say, I'm going to risk helping this person because for whatever reason I, I, I like this person and I want to see him in a good place, I'll risk it. But a few years ago, we had a trucker on Highway 14 on a very, very foggy morning that took a risk of passing a car that he thought was going too slow in dense fog that he could not see hardly your hand in front of your face that morning. And he just went out around. This was when Highway 14 was still two lane north of us. And it turned out very poorly. I think there was lives lost in that, wasn't there, Justin? Um, and, and we look at that and we say, we don't care how slow that car was going. We don't care how big of a rush you were that morning. That was a needless risk. That was really borderline stupidity to do such a thing. And so the man goes down in, in, uh, in a very poor light from our point of view. And so, with that said, we get the picture. Risk is considered acceptable. It's considered part of life's experience, and it's considered heroic in some instances. But, as the story of this little submersible goes, to take risk in a vessel that is questionable simply for the thrill of seeing the Titanic on the bottom of the ocean uh, likely could land in the category of foolish. It's certainly that is where it somewhat lands today. So what are some lessons we can learn from this? <clears throat> I would like to to present you with some life life lessons I think we can learn from this unhappy event. First thing we can learn, as I alluded to, Rush was a man that would not take advice of caution from people he should have been listening to. Stockton knew very little about um, building submersibles or submarines. That's, that wasn't his field. He was just a man with money that liked to have a good time. Yeah, maybe a bit more now. I don't want to underestimate him. It's not like he wasn't an educated man or anything. But m people that knew much more than him about underwater uh, aviation and building of submarines warned him repeatedly, you know what, you shouldn't do this. And uh, one one man was actually on his payroll, and he, he came to him and said, you know, I think for your best interest, you really need to change course here. Rather than listening to this man, he fired him. Proverbs 12, 15 puts it like this. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. And the high schoolers that are taking wisdom literature know that that's antithetic, don't we? That's an antithetic proverb. It says, 
you have two choices here. You can either listen to counsel and be wise, or you can choose not to, and you can be a real fool. And that's what, what this man Rush decided to do. He had money, he had ambition, and he had inadvisable optimism, and they were working against him. He was not listening to people that saw from another angle. And folks, we can succumb to this as well, can we not? What Rush's problem was is that he was emotionally involved with this thing. He had an emotional interest in this little submersible and his ambitions. And it deafened his ears to wise counsel. And this can happen to us as well. We can allow emotion to overpower common sense even at times and deafen our ears to good counsel. So the lesson we can learn here, when good counsel comes to us from people that we know to care for us, who have walked the journey of life for a while, who have seen a few things, have experienced its knocks, and to use it like we say it sometimes, have been around the block a time or two, okay? We maybe haven't completely circled the block yet. Aren't we wise to listen to those people? Even if it, if we have an emotional drive that's telling us otherwise, wouldn't that be wise? Just think about Rehoboam and Jeroboam in our Sunday school lesson a few weeks ago, and I think we have enough said on that. The second thing I would like to point out here that we can learn, Mr. Rush was willing to experiment with questionable materials to build his submersible. As I told you before, Carbon fiber had not been tested. Subs are made of very different materials than what he used. And the other thing is, and I didn't mention this, this man had been to, to, uh, to the bottom of the ocean to see the Titanic twice before. He had been there in 21 and 22. And at least on one of those trips, he had actually lost communications with the mothership for two hours. And, um, I mean... Not a good deal. I mean, that's not a good thing to be losing connection with the mothership. Uh, on one of these instances, one of his trips, I'm not sure if it was to the Titanic or another little adventure he took with it, there was some cracking sounds, okay? Not not good, not things you'd really want to hear when you're underwater. And he, he was the type of guy who's like, oh, it's, it's all good. It's, it's fine. No problem. He just kind of tried to soothe his passengers with this. But he was willing to experiment with this. There's a verse in Jeremiah that maybe speaks of this a little bit. And again, this is not about building submersibles, but it, Stockton would have maybe uh, been wise to, uh, to think about this verse and apply it to his life. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. What, where is the good way and walk therein? And ye shall find rest for your souls. But the people he was talking to said, we will not walk therein. We do well to build with materials that are known to work. In life's journeys, there's many examples and lessons we can learn from issues that are timeless, principles that have been applied that are timeless. They always work. And to experiment with things that have not been proven is not wise in life's journey. In 1 Corinthians 3, um, Paul tells the, the Corinthian church, he said, there's no other foundation that a man can lay except Christ Jesus. He said, let's start there. Well, that's the foundation we start with. 
Now he said, if any man build upon this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, or hay, or stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. There's a lot in those verses, and we're going to try to just button it down real quick. Basically, even those that are building on the foundation of Jesus Christ could still be using um, unadvisable materials to do so. Could be messing around with hay and wood and stubble. Uh, who wants to live in a house made of hay and wood and stubble? Well, none of us do, right? But he said, you, you have an option. You can actually use things like gold and silver and precious stones. Well, that's, that's the house we want to be build, building and living in, right? And, and what Paul is saying is, he said, this, this analogy represents your works and your choices in life. And he's given the Corinthian church a, an option. He said, what materials are you choosing to work with? And he said, if you're choosing to work with the, with the hay and wood and stubble, eventually, down the road sometime, it will be made manifest for all to see that you weren't working with very good materials because it will burn with fire. When the, when the fires of life hit you, it's going to burn. But he said, if you have been building with, with these good materials, likewise, it will be made manifest to all that you have been building and working with good material. Now, I'm not prepared to say exactly how this, how to interpret everything there at the end. He, he insinuates or he suggests that even those people that were frittering around with the inferior materials um, still have a chance at getting in by the skin of their teeth. That's almost the way it, it, it sounds. But who wants to do that, right? Who wants to spend their entire life frittering around with fodder and straw and have really virtually nothing to show for it at the end of your life when you could have been using hay, or I'm sorry, Gold and silver and precious stones. And the fact of the matter is, we have that option. It's not like the, the uh, gold and silver and precious stones are unobtainable. And this applies to my life personally. This applies to my family. This applies to church building. You can take this analogy and you can put it to every facet of your life. How are you building? Number three. Another life lesson. <clears throat> Mr. Rush took needless risk because he wanted to take shortcuts and quickly get this business venture called Ocean Gate churning in some dollars. He wanted to be the first one to the chase. He wanted to be the first one to offer paying passengers a voyage down to see the Titanic. The remains of the Titanic. And if you had a cool $250,000 and you had Russia's phone number, you could schedule a, a little ride on that thing. Interestingly enough, I did uh, find it interesting that there was one guy that did have the cool 250, and he went and he looked at that thing and he said, no, thank you, I'll, uh, I'll take my money back. He was a wise man. When he saw it, he said, no, I'm not interested after all, I guess. But the point of it is this that I want you to get. It is no... It is no secret to us, and I'm not even going to wax long and eloquent upon it, 
But the New Testament is full, the Proverbs are full, of admonition to people that want to get rich, and that is their sole goal, okay? And we will do what we have to do to reach that goal. I'm going to read you the well-known verses in 1 Timothy 6 without much further ado. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses." Money holds a position in our lives sometimes that can very, very quickly capture our hearts, doesn't it? And the heart of a money-loving person is seldom satisfied. He always needs just a little bit more. And I don't know where Rush um, all landed and all that, and that's kind of a little bit beside the point, but the fact that he was willing, it almost seems ironic, to uh, build a cheap submersible and then charge an outlandish figure to ride in the thing. And before you could ride in it, you had to sign a little document where the word death appeared five times on the front cover that says, I'm willing to risk my life to put myself in that thing and go down. And by the way, here's 250000 for that for that opportunity. It just really seems um, seems a little unadvisable, doesn't it? But he enjoyed his money. Where's that money today? Think he took it with him? Well, if, it's, if it was in his back pocket, it's at the bottom of the ocean right now, isn't it? Number four, Russia's risk also jeopardized the reputation of others. And this is the one I found almost the most fascinating. There was a little, um, uh, I shouldn't call it little, but in Newfoundland, there's a research, um, aquatic research institute, they call it, that it entered into an agreement with this man that he could house his little submersible there. And there was a few other little favors they had going back and forth. There was a, there was a relationship that they built there. But this, this um, aquatic um, institute, whatever they all do there, I'm not sure, was a bit prestigious. I mean, it just wasn't any old, um, you know, uh, place there. A little, little uh, prestige to it. And, and so they had this little relationship going. But after this infamous uh, demise of this sub and the investigation, it was found out about this little relationship between uh, Stockton and, and this place. Suddenly, they wanted to really distance themselves. No, no, no. We, 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 don't, we don't really want to identify with this man much at all. And there was other people like that that Stockton uh, wished to identify with, but but... To varying degrees, they wished to really disassociate with them, themselves with him after the after the adventure that uh, that turns that went south. And and and, and this is the, this is the lesson we need to learn from this. You know, we often say, and it's very very true, the only Bible that people read is us. The only Christians that people will judge uh, God and Jesus by is us, right? 
We represent something, and we are admonished many times that because of that fact, let's act like it, right? And that's very true. But take that one step further. Did you ever think about the fact that that the way I act actually it, it actually affects your reputation too? And why is that? It's because you're sitting in church with me this morning. So when I go out and I begin to engage in unchristian things, unholy things, ungodly things, or things that do not lend itself to life and godliness and righteous living, or I present myself in that way, or I talk in that way, I'm just, I'm just kind of a low-life Christian, if you will, right? Do you know what other people think about the people you go to church with? They say, well, the whole bunch must be that way. But it works the other way, too. I know a man that I think almost thinks too highly of me. I, I'm almost embarrassed how, how wonderfully he thinks of me. But part of that reason is, is because he has had good experiences with Mennonites along the way. And in his mind, Mennonites walk on water. No matter whether I tell him, well, you know, sometimes I'm always tempted to tamp it down a little bit. But, but you know, when I think about that, I'm like, what a wonderful testimony somebody must have left in his life that he is willing to associate me with that person and I am a recipient of that man's good works. That man was building with gold and silver and precious stones and he's willing to assume I'm doing the same thing. See? And, and so think about that, people. Um, when, when we go out the doors here this afternoon and we begin to live our lives tomorrow, you're not only representing Christ, you're not only making a mark in life for yourself, you are also demonstrating, or people are picking it up this way, that everybody that you go to church with is just like you. Is that how you want people to perceive our church? Just, just think about that. Number five. The risk-reward the risk-slash-reward of Russia's adventures was questioned by many. And the question is this. Is the glimpse of a wrecked ship over a 100 years on the bottom of the ocean worth the cost that it ultimately did cost? It was the risk-reward ratio right? Okay, that's the question we need to ask. And, and you might even get different answers from different people. There might be some people that are so into extreme things and, and, and rah, rah, this was great. They might say, yes, you know what, that, that, that risk-reward ratio was about right. You know what, what's the, what's the chances of getting down there and seeing that thing and I want to do that? Yep, I'll give my life. And yes, that, 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 that seemed about right. But when you really think about it, really, just for looking at a wrecked ship, $250,000, and yeah, I'll give my life, too, while I'm at it. It just seems a little off, doesn't it? But the same thing applies right back to our lives today. Do we think seriously about the reward and the risk ratio when we go about to do things? You know, I think we that live in first world countries, such as America... 
are faced with decisions that many, many in this world are not faced with when it comes to this thing of spiritual risk and reward. See, we have the ability in this country and in other other first world countries too to live well, well, well beyond the uh, the the um, uh, food and raiment category. Okay, well, well beyond that. Every one of us here this morning has that ability. And how many decisions are we forced to make in life that a person living in a third world country does not have to make because he lives in a third world country and we live in a first world country? I don't even think, as I sat and thought about it at my desk, I don't even think I can begin to comprehend how many decisions I make in a year that if I lived in a third world country, it wouldn't even be on the radar. Um, Brother Curtis is building the house. I'll pick on you a little bit. He's making a lot of decisions on this house. You know, what am I going to do here or there? You know, how am I going to build this or that? You know, and, and soon he's going to get to a point where he's going to be putting the, the decor on the inside and he's going to be buying cabinets and, and all these things. And he's going to have to make decisions about building his house that if he lived in Liberia, he would not have to make. And, and not just Curtis, the rest of us do that every day too, right? But I'm just pointing that out. That these are, these are, this is how it is. Furthermore, I had to think about that. Because of our abundance, I wonder sometimes if we choose so unwisely, but we don't even comprehend the, the, the foolishness of our choices because we have such an abundance. And we ourselves are willing to spend money on stuff that brings us nothing beyond a thrill or nothing beyond a soft chair to sit in or nothing beyond something to just look at and give us visual um, uh, satisfaction. And folks, here's the problem. You can't even draw a line and say, here's where the line is crossed. Here's where it is. Here's the line. You do this. You cross the line. The thing is so arbitrary that it is impossible. People have tried. There's been people who have tried. I don't know that there's been many people that have been successful. But Jesus asked the question one time, and we know this question, and he put it like this. He said, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? Basically what Jesus was saying is, what are you willing to risk in exchange for your soul? What is it? What is that thing? We know the rich young ruler said, I'll risk my riches for for my soul. I'll do that. Demas, he risked the love of the world for his soul. That's what he did. And there are rich men and Demases that abound today. And folks, we have decisions to make every single day. What am I willing to give in exchange for my soul? Are we thinking that clearly about the matter? You know, we may be tempted to shake our heads at Mr. Rush, but let's seriously ask the question, are we making the same mistake? Am I possibly gambling my soul's destiny in exchange for trivial pleasures and lifestyles? In Psalms 106.15, it's a story of the, uh, the children of Israel there in the desert. And it said how they murmured. Do you remember what they were murmuring about? They basically murmured, 
when they didn't have food and water. You think you might complain too? I have a feeling I would have been in a murmuring crowd. I, I just feel like I would have been. But it says that God gave them what they wanted, but he sent leanness to their souls. Okay. And again, can I say it one more time? We are so far beyond the manna and water thing, it's unbelievable. And I had asked myself, is the leanness of soul that I experience at times directly connected to the fact that I have no clue when I have crossed that arbitrary line and I am engaging in things that bring leanness to soul and I don't even know it? And I do not recognize that risk and reward ratio correctly. Number six. When Mr. Rush's life, I'm sorry, risk ended badly, copious quantities of money and time were spent trying to find the disaster. The, the figure I come up with was 1.6 million. It was spent by the United States. I don't, I don't know what Canada spent. But that's what the United States spent trying to find Rush and his friends down there. And this is another, another factor we don't think about sometimes. But when I decide to live life on the edge, I decide to take unnecessary risks. I don't pay attention to counsel. I take my own way. I, um, I do all these things in, in, a, in a way that we just talked about. And then I have a catastrophe. Who's left to pick up the pieces? Did you ever think about the amount of time that people sometimes have to invest in somebody's life because of choices that were made that were unbelievably avoidable? But advice was unheeded, and so the risk was taken, and then somebody was tasked with picking up the pieces. Now, I want to say something right here, lest you misunderstand me. That is part of the church's mission. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't um, say, well, you know what? Yeah, he took his risk. Let him deal with it. No, we, we should be ready to help people. That, that's part of our mission. We should be like Christ was, here to bind up the brokenhearted and to preach deliverance to the captives, etc. However, those of us that have set Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Wednesday night after Sunday school lesson after Bible school attendance, and we know the way and we have had the advice and we have, we know, and we choose to pick that unadvisable risk and go with it. Have you thought through clearly, have I thought through clearly, what that will potentially cost someone to clean up the mess someday, possibly. Lastly, number seven. Mr. Rush may well have felt that he had beat the odds because, after all, this was the third time down. He had gone to the, to the rec, rec site two other times, and likely every trip emboldened him to go one more time. Now, he didn't get very many chances. This was just only number three. But I have the fact that he had been down there before. He had lost communications but he had survived. He had been down there once before and he heard loud banging sounds. Well, nothing had happened. So back up he comes. I'll do it one more time. The man was, he had nerves made of steel. I got to give him that. And I'll take four other people with me while I'm at it. You know, risks are just like that, aren't they? If we take a risk and we succeed, you know, we, 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 maybe somebody gambles for the first or second time. He wins big. Oh, it just emboldens him, right? I'll do it again. Or maybe a person smokes a cigarette and he gets away with it. I'll just, I'll do it again, you know? I, those kinds of things. 
Maybe a farmer has a bull that's known to be a little mean on the farm, but he's never gotten me, so I'll just, I'll just let him hang around. He seems to be a good bull. Not, not good ideas, are they? You know what makes Mr. Rush um, popular or famous? It's the fact that he had a catastrophe. That's why we know about the guy. If he went down there and he would have succeeded and came back up, you or I would never have heard of Mr. Rush. We wouldn't have. But his catastrophe is what he will forever be known by. And isn't that, wouldn't that be too bad if in our lives it would be the catastrophe in life is what we would be known by? I was the guy that chose to leave my wife. I was the guy that decided one drink would, would work and then it ended up a, a drunkard. I was the guy that left the faith only because I had engaged in risky behavior up to that point. You know, the thing of it is, sometimes we're shocked when these things happen. But if we knew the backstory and we knew the risks that were being repeatedly taken over and over and over again, the shock does, goes away, doesn't it? God calls us the sober living. A sober person will not take unnecessary risk. He will not live life on the edge. He will be very, very vigilant to fortify his well-being by eschewing evil, just like Job did. I don't have time to do this, but I do want to just end with this sentence real quick. If you want to take risks, there are plenty of godly risks to take. Plenty. will give you thrills that you wouldn't understand. Look at Queen Esther. She took a risk. She will go down in history as a woman that took a godly risk and she succeeded. If there's somebody that you need to talk to that, that, uh, that you're kind of at odds with, it is always right to take the risk to talk to the person. That's, that's a godly risk that's well worth it. Um, you want a real thrill, I'm told you can, there's, there's organizations that can help you uh, take risks to take Bibles into places that are a little bit scary. You want a risk? That's, that's a risk that's probably worth taking. There are good and godly risks. The point I'm trying to make this morning is let's not live on the edge the other way. And may God help us to know the difference. Let's kneel for prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the fact that you are the God that uh, loves us, you in some ways have taken a risk on us. You have sent your son to die for us, and you have extended that plan of salvation, that we can know you, and Lord, we, we ask for your forgiveness where we have failed you, where we have not lived up to our holy calling, where we have taken unneeded risks and have had unhappy circumstances from it. Lord, help us to learn the lessons that we should from this experience that we talked about this morning. Help us to eschew evil. Help us to love the good. Help us to live soberly. Help us not to take risks that will unnecessarily land us in places that we never wish to be. God, I thank you for each one of our brothers and sisters here this morning and for the, for the help and the, the encouragement they are to us. And Lord, bless them abundantly. Bless those that are not in our midst this morning, wherever they are. Bless them too, and may the grace of your love shine on them this week as well. We ask this in your name. Amen.